0: Okay, so when we come to the the um, end of the book of Malachi, we see that Israel has become a rebellious, sinful, hard-hearted, calloused group of people for the most part. But within that group, there is a faithful remnant, a group of people who have not Um, gone along with the crowd, so to speak, a group of people who have remained faithful to Yahweh, to his law. And so this godly minority is swimming against the tide of these uh, unfaithful Jews, unfaithful Israel. And at the end of chapter 3, the author describes the contrast between these two groups very, very clearly. And I want to read it again for you. He begins to talk about the rebels in verse 13. And the prophet says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve the Lord. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, the sinful blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they, are, but they put God to the test and they escape. So there he describes the, the rebels and the attitude of these rebels. And there's three things that become very, very obvious about these, these rebels. The first thing they say is this. It's vain to serve the Lord. There's really no benefit. There's no upside to serving God I don't see any blessing as a consequence of keeping his charge in my life. So I just won't bother serving anymore. In other words, worship doesn't pay. I can't see the blessings, I can't see positive consequences. When I look at everybody else around me who is not serving the Lord, they're having a good life, they're living happily. So what's the profit? What's the benefit? What's the upside? They didn't see anything. Then they say this, there's no profit, secondly, in mourning. There's no profit in mourning sin. Why should I repent? Why should I feel bad? Why should I repent and change my ways? There's, there's no profit in mourning my bad behavior or our collective sin. So why repent? And then thirdly, says the arrogant and the evildoer tests God taunts God. The the, the people around us in these these various nations around us test God. They taunt him. And God does nothing. God doesn't respond with judgment. God doesn't censure them. They're living pretty happy lives. so, So God must be okay with their sin. God must have somehow changed or redefined his understanding, his definition of what sin actually is. Because they test him and he does nothing. There's no benefit to serving God. I don't need to repent. Because God is tolerant of sin. And, and somehow his, his definition of sin has evolved or changed over time. Does that sound familiar? Now This was written 24, 2,500 years ago. But there are people in our culture within Christianity today who espouse those same ideas. Who think the same way. There's no benefit, so why would I serve God? There's no upside that I see, so why would I serve? And why would I repent? Culture's doing it. Why would I mourn over something that is accepted in our culture? And God must be okay with it. He doesn't judge. He must have changed the standards. He must have lowered the bar somehow. But there's another group. Let me read about those from verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So a group of people got together, a small group of people got together, and they spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before, before him, before God, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And there is the hinge of the passage. The the passage is designed to help us contrast the righteous and the wicked. It's there to help us understand the difference between those who genuinely serve God and those who don't serve Him. This faithful remnant feared the Lord, it says. They talked with each other and they stayed in fellowship with each other and they wrote a book of remembrance. We'll talk about that in a second. They wrote a book of remembrance. And thirdly, it says, they esteemed God's name. And this group made up his treasured possession. And he says, I'll spare this group. I'll spare this group. And he makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So when is this distinction supposed to happen? When is this separation going to happen? When is this delineation between the righteous and the wicked going to happen? Because right now, what the prophet is saying is they are living side by side. This large group of unfaithful Jews, religious Jews, who have these sinful attitudes and this smaller group of a faithful remnant who are being faithful to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And God says, I'm going to make a distinction. I will delineate between the two. And so the question we have to ask is, when is that going to happen? And the answer comes in chapter 4, when the prophet begins to talk about that day. That day. He talks about it five times, actually. The day of the Lord. The day that God is going to act. The day that God is going to do this great thing. And he describes it and says that two things will happen. And I'm not going to read chapter 4 again for you, but essentially he says this. That first of all, in verse 4-1, verse we read that the oven blast of God's furnace, God's anger, will set Israel ablaze and these rebels will be stubble and ash. So God is going to vent his anger. He's going to vent his rage on these unfaithful, unrepentant, sinful, religious Jews. And at the same time, The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Before he comes, Elijah will come. John the Baptist, we talked about that in chapter 3. How the Messiah is to be uh, introduced by the one, the messenger who will go before. He describes him here as Elijah. Jesus talked about John the Baptist being Elijah. And he says, after he comes to prepare the way of the Lord, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now, because we know the New Testament and because we have the blessing of hindsight, we know that the son of righteousness was clearly Jesus, who by his death and his resurrection brought healing, perfect, absolute healing, and perfect redemption to Israel. But we also know from history, from the prophecies of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, and from what his, history tells us, that God's Anger was poured out on Israel, rebellious, sinful Israel in 70 AD. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to his own. Yahweh in the flesh, God, the God of Israel in the person of Jesus Christ, came to his own and his own rejected him. This sinful group of people, these rebels, the rebellion had become deeper. Their sin had become more callous. Their hearts had become harder so that when Jesus finally came, God in the flesh came. The people of God, the people of Israel, rejected him. We have no king but Caesar. Away with him, away with him. Crucify him, give us Barabbas. He was rejected by the Jews And as a consequence of the sin that had built up over generations, God vented his wrath in 70 AD. You see this repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets. Redemption and wrath. Redemption and wrath. And and again, this, this passage speaks about it. God is going to do something miraculous and wonderful, healing and redemptive for the remnant. And he is going to pour out his wrath on sinners. So the question is, how does this apply to us? And I think the answer is this, that within Israel, as within the church, there are always two groups of people. There are religious sinners, and and then there are genuinely saved saints. As within Israel, within the church, you have the wheat and the tares. You have the believers and the make-believers, You have those who are genuinely, authentically in relationship with Jesus Christ and are saved and are his treasured possession. And there are those who are not. Maybe unaware of the fact that they're not, but they're not. Jesus said that. The wheat and the tares will live side by side until the end. So within every church, within every congregation that I preach to, I know that there are people who are believers, born again, transformed, filled with the Spirit of God. And then there are people who maybe think that they are Christians, who maybe think that they are right with God, but in fact aren't. And so the opportunity that we have with this passage this morning is to look at it and to ask ourselves a question, what does genuine, authentic salvation look like? What does it mean to be part of God's treasured possession That's why the Apostle Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. And so we're going to do that this morning. But before we do, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me and ask God's blessing on these next few moments. Father, I pray that for those in this room who are part of your treasured possession, who are saved, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who are part of the remnant, I pray that you would just encourage and affirm and bless and comfort with the knowledge that they are in Christ. But Lord, if there are people here this morning who may be self-deceived or perhaps deceived in some other way, or who know quite objectively that they have never bowed the knee to Jesus, I pray, Father, that you would break through the confusion or the rebellion and bring salvation and healing. Lord, you are the son of righteousness and you rose with healing in your wings. I pray, Father, that that healing would be felt today in this group of dear people, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Before I begin, I want to say this. When we think about, am I in Christ, we often think about our failures. We often think about our sinfulness, right? That's, that's, one of the, that's where we kind of go. We do something that surprises us. We sin, and we go, man, I, am I a Christian? And I want to, at the very beginning, just dispel that. I want to dispel that. Folks, Christians sin. Okay? Until the day that you see Jesus face to face, you are going to struggle with sin. As a matter of fact, the struggle with sin is an indication that you are, in fact, in Christ. And I find it fascinating in this passage of Scripture The qualities, the three qualities that Malachi or the Holy Spirit through Malachi points out for us to see have nothing to do with the fact that we stumble and fall on our faces all the time. It's part and parcel of the Christian journey. Folks, we're flawed. We live in a sinful, broken body. We will never be perfect until we see Jesus face to face. So so don't let sin and the fact that you trip up once in a while or maybe more than once in a while don't let that deter you from really pressing into what we're going to talk about today because if these three qualities that we're going to identify now are present in your life I believe that you can have confidence to know that you are in Christ that you are part of God's treasured possession and the first one is this the righteous fear the lord the righteous fear of the Lord. Now the majority of the Jews at that time had come to the conclusion that you read in chapter 3, verse 13, that there is no profit in serving God. There is no benefit, no value. It's vain to serve the Lord. There's no profit for me in being faithful to the God of Israel. The decision to serve the Lord was based on what do I get out of it? How does serving God bless me? How does living a countercultural life enhance my life now? I can't see any upside. I can't see any blessing. But the faithful remnant feared the Lord. They served God not because of what they thought they could get from him, They served God simply because he was worthy to be served. They recognized who he was. They saw his magnificence and they were in awe of him. They feared him. They reverenced him. And that was the catalyst. The faithful worship God because he is worthy to be worshipped. You see, that's the thing that characterizes someone who is in Christ. You worship God not because of what Jesus can do for you, not because there's an upside, not because of mercenary considerations. You worship Christ, you worship the God of Israel because you understand who he is. That's fundamental. That's core at the basis of every Christian, truly born again Christian, man or woman or young people, a young person is an understanding about the magnificence and the glory of God. We worship God because we are in awe of him, because we fear and reverence him. And if that's you, you're part of the faithful remnant. Now listen to this. The rebel, the rebel is a consumer at heart. The rebel worships God not solely because he is worthy to be worshipped, but because of mercenary, mercenary motivations. And so as a consequence, the prosperity gospel profoundly appeals to the wicked. The prosperity gospel, come to Jesus and get, come to Jesus and be healed, come to Jesus and have your problem solved, come to Jesus and be wealthy, come to Jesus and be healthy, and it goes on and on and on, and it's all a lie. Like Jesus said, come to Jesus and pick up your cross, that was Christ's message. Come to Jesus and get blessed is the world's message. It's Satan's message. is that It's a counterfeit Christianity. And it is wicked, and it appeals to the wickedness of our hearts. It appeals to our selfishness. It appeals to our pride. It appeals to our desire to get. It appeals to our desire to manipulate God to our ends rather than being transformed by God for his ends. And it's so critical that we understand this. If you want to know if you're a rebel, ask yourselves, why do you worship? Why do you serve? Do you honor him? Do you worship him? Do you serve him because of the benefits? Or just because he is worthy? Just because he is who he is? See, a truly born-again man or woman is a person who has seen God, has understood who God is, and has been captured by his magnificence, has been captured by his grace, has been brought to a place of awe and wonder before a holy, magnificent, and majestic God who we understand can't be manipulated, can't be coerced, can't be talked into doing certain things for us. He is God, He is sovereign, He's good. And so we just worship him for who he is because he's worthy. I thought yesterday as I was thinking about this, about Job. Like think about Job's life. There was a guy who knew God and he says to one of his friends in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I'll hope in him. You see, there is the attitude of a man Who fears God. And that's the first quality. The second quality is that the righteous pursue eternal rewards. The majority of Jews in Malachi's day had come to the conclusion that their sin was inconsequential. Why mourn sin? Because sin is essentially inconsequential. I look at my neighbors who are not part of Israel and they're sinning and they're seeming to have a very happy life. They're taunting God. They're testing God. And God is not responding in in censuring them or in judgment or in, in any kind of correction. So it appears to me, the wicked were saying, that sin has no consequences. There's no downside to sinning, no regret, no mourning, no guilt, no shame. And that's typical of a rebel. A rebel has a careless, cavalier, dismissive attitude towards sin. A rebel will always diminish the impact of sin and the consequences and will not mourn his or her sin. But this is a beautiful contrast. What did the faithful do? They feared God and so they got together. They came together as a group. That's why small group, that's why Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't work. We need each other. They got together as a group and what did they do? They wrote a book of remembrance. A book of remembrance. Now what was this book and why did they write it? Well there is an illustration of a similar book being written at almost the exact same time as Malachi's book, Malachi's prophecy was written. And that is the book of Esther, in the book of Esther. And I don't have time to go through the whole story of the book of Esther, but it it happened just about 20 to 30 years before what we are reading about here in Malachi. Mordecai, Queen Esther's uncle, had discovered a plot by a guy named Haman to kill the king, King Ahasuerus. And Mordecai, through the queen, communicated this threat to the king. And so the king was spared. And ultimately, the Jews, also who were living at that time in the capital of the Persian Empire, were also spared. And so this service by Mordecai was written in a book of remembrance. The Chronicles of the Kings recorded Mordecai's faithfulness. So this was a literal book. It was a catalog of righteous deeds by righteous people. So years later, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. And so he said to his servant, can you bring me that book? So they brought the book of remembrance, and the king read the book. And he's reading the story and going, I remember that Mordecai. He told Esther, and Esther told me, and, and, you know, it turned out well. And Haman is dead, which is a good thing. And then he says to the servant, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? Did we ever reward him? The servant says, no. And so the king rewarded Mordecai, because of the Book of Remembrance. And so the point is this. The righteous never forget that God remembers. The righteous never forget that God has a long, long, long memory, both for sin and rebellion, And faithful service and righteousness. God remembers. And He is a rewarder of those who serve Him. You see, the wicked thought, I shouldn't say understood, but in their understanding, sin had no consequences. There was no downside, no upside to serving God, no downside to rebellion. So let's just live our life because God doesn't care. There's not going to be an answering. There's not going to be a a day of accountability. So let's just live. But the righteous know that God remembers. They never forget that God never forgets. And so they wrote a book. They got together and they said, look, let's write down. Let's put it on paper. Let's remember our faithfulness and our commitment. They take sin seriously, the righteous do. They never forget that God keeps a record of all that we do and our faithful service to Him, and that He rewards those who are faithful. He rewards those that are faithful. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you do, if you believe that how you live now will have an impact on how you will live in eternity, it is going to profoundly impact the choices that you make today. It's going to profoundly impact your commitment and your devotion to this church. It's going to change the way you think about your marriage and your relationship with your children. It's going to profoundly impact how you live your life at work. There is no aspect, no facet of your life that will not be touched by this truth that God is watching. He is a rewarder of those who serve Him. It's going to have an impact. The point is this the righteous live in light of eternity and the rewards that God will bestow on those who are faithful. Now, as I said at the beginning of the service, we can't live perfect lives. We simply can't. We are all sinners, and we all will continue to sin. The issue over which we struggle may, and it should, evolve into something else. Like, I'm dealing with sins now in my life that I didn't think I had 20 years ago. Like, really? I, I thought I was pretty humble 20 years ago, and, and, I- and I'm not, but the issue is, you're still strug- we're still struggling. It never, ever stops. But this is something, this is a quality, this is a characteristic that marks the righteous. They understand that God never forgets. He always remembers, and we live our lives in the basis of the fact that one day there will be rewards given. That's why Jesus said, lay up, Treasure in heaven. Do you believe that you can do that? Do you believe that you can invest in heaven today? Do you believe that how you live your life now is going to impact how you live then? You should. He is a rewarder of those who serve him. And thirdly, the righteous live to esteem God's name. Now, ultimately, the purpose of Israel was what? Israel was called out of the nations to bring honor and glory to her God, to live in such a profoundly cult- countercultural way, distinct from the nations around them, but that by their righteous living, by their countercultural living, they would reflect the glory and the greatness of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So when the people strayed from the law, when the people failed, they would repent, they would turn back, they would change their behavior because they understood that their sin sullied the name of God. It caused disrepute to come upon the name of God. And so they would return to God and in doing so, they would enhance again his reputation and the name and the fame of the God of Israel would be burnished. But now these people, these rebels, are asking themselves, why aren't the sinners punished? People are getting away with things. They test God. They taunt him. They rub it in his face, and he does nothing. And instead of concluding that God is patient and just, they decided in their thinking that God is tolerant that somehow God's definition of sin has changed. But God's okay with certain things that perhaps he wasn't okay with before, but times have changed. What they were were doing as a consequence is that they were calling into question the righteous character of God himself. And they were sullying his name. The arrogant are blessed... Sinners prosper. They put God to the test. They escape. God doesn't care. God's definition of sin has diminished. His outrage has lessened. He's no longer the same God that we met at Mount Sinai. They were questioning the justice, the holiness, and the righteous character of the God of Israel. But look what the the righteous remnant did. In contrast to this, they esteemed the name of Yahweh. That's all it tells us. They esteemed the name of Yahweh. They understood, these these faithful remnant understood this, and it's so critical that we understand this. The name of God is either brought low or lifted up by how we live together And how we live individually. We together as a congregation. You as a family. You as an individual. You will either burnish and brighten the name of God in our community. Everywhere you go. Or you will tarnish the name of God in our community wherever you go. And that is the potential of the church. That was the potential of Israel. To burnish the name of God. To make it glorious. And what were they doing? They were doing exactly the opposite. So this faithful remnant said, No, no, we will not go along with that. We will esteem the name of God. We will live in such a way, we will worship in such a way as to cause people to see the greatness of our God. We will live out his law. We will embrace this call to counterculturalism. We will not redefine sin. We will live as God has called us to live because we know that he is unchanging. His ethic and his morality doesn't change. And so we will simply submit to what he says and we will esteem his name by virtue of how we live our life. A wicked person a rebel is dismissive about their reputation and the standing and the repute of God. The righteous mourn their sin and repent because we have the mandate to manifest his glory in our world. I want you to just turn with me as we come to the end of this message to 1 Peter chapter 2. In this passage of Scripture, Peter gives the names that were used to describe Old Testament Israel and applies them to the church. And it's important that we see that so we can make the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between what is being said to Old Testament Israel and what is being said to the church. But look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 2. But you are, little church scattered all over the place because of persecution, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That little word that there is really so that. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Someone who is truly born again by the Spirit of God is passionate about that. You understand that the reputation, the name, the character of the God of Israel, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is reflected in our church and how we love one another and how we interact with one another and how we worship together and how we serve our community together. It's, it's, it's burnished by the church. We exist to manifest in our world the glory of the God of Israel who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we've been called to do. And if you are a believer, you simply cannot be dismissive about the reputation of Jesus. You cannot be cavalier, unconcerned, about how Jesus is seen. And to the extent that you have the potential to glorify him in your life and in your home and in your church, you pursue it passionately. Now, interestingly, and I mentioned this earlier on, in, in chap- from chapters, chapter 3, verse 17 through the end of chapter 4, the prophet speaks about a day that is coming. He five times, talks about a day, in that day, in the day that is coming. He mentions it five times. In that day, he is going to redeem his treasured possession. In that day, he is going to act in history to finally save, finally and fully save his faithful remnant. Something that the blood of bulls and goats could never have accomplished, Jesus did on the cross by shedding his blood for us. By purchasing us for the Father. And he brought healing. Perfect, absolute healing to us that will find its final, fullest manifestation when we see Christ face to face and we're given a perfect body like his perfect body that matches our perfect souls because of the resurrection of Jesus. We see this looking back at the cross. We see the fulfillment of this. That day came when God did what he had promised to do through Christ. So how do you apply this? What does it mean practically? I think one of the things it means practically is that, and this is sort of a subset of section three here, is that truly born-again people have a passion to share the gospel. We talk about what God did in that day. We talk about the cross. We talk about the transaction that happened when Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood on our place, when God punished his son so that we could escape the wrath of a holy God for our sins. We share the gospel even though people dismiss it, because in the gospel, in the presentation of the gospel, in the articulation of the gospel, Christ is glorified. And so we don't stop talking about the gospel. And I think it's sort of. A blessing for me, at least, in the last opportunity that I have to address you, at least in in the short term. Maybe I'll get invited back. (laughs) But I think it's appropriate in these last few words from me to you, my brothers and sisters of Hope Markham. Share the gospel. Talk about what Christ did on the cross that day. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Gentile. Keep the gospel, the core in your heart. Keep your go- the gospel, the core in your church. Never stray from the gospel. Never stray from the truth that, 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 that of the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God vented his wrath on his son. So that we could be forgiven for our sins. Preach it, teach it, share it, never stop speaking about the gospel. So, how do you know you're in Christ? Well, I think we've answered that. We worship Him because He is worthy of our worship. We know that he rewards those who serve him. And so we don't quit. We don't quit. We just keep on serving the Lord. And we esteem him. We endeavor to live lives that bring him glory. We live countercultural lives that bring him glory. And, and we share the gospel. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, that's not me. I prayed a prayer once at church years ago, but it hasn't really taken hold. I don't think that way. And my relationship with God really is mercenary. I got this, you know, when I get in trouble, I just pray and hope that he answers my prayers. I, I kind of, I'm okay with sin. I live in it. But I go to church. And I'm more concerned about my own reputation than Jesus. So I, I, I wouldn't share the gospel with anybody. I'd be too embarrassed. Don't want people to laugh at me. If that's you, brother, sister, there's a very good chance that you're not in Christ. And so what I would say to you is this. Believe in Jesus, not the caricature, not a caricature, the the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. Believe in him. Rest in him. And he will begin to do something in your soul. He'll begin to show you his magnificence so that you'll worship him just because of who he is. You'll recognize that he he will reward, he will judge, and you'll begin to live your life laying up treasures in heaven. And you'll begin to want to see him lifted up. You'll begin to want to see his name esteemed and honored and blessed. And you'll begin to share the gospel boldly. And as you do that, you will have a confidence, an unshakable confidence in your soul and you'll be able to say with absolute conviction, I am his and he is mine. And I want that for you. So if you question, just simply trust, believe in Jesus, plead with him to open your eyes that you might see his glory in all his magnificence, that he would save you. Ask him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it brings to my heart, to our hearts. I pray this morning that if there's a man or a woman, young person in this church who knows they're not in Christ or has perhaps thought that they were and now are reevaluating, I pray, Father God, that by the working of your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to them the magnificence of who you are. Cause them to see the depth and the depravity and the consequences of their sin. Let them simply fall into the arms of Jesus and believe and trust, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.